Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street partners with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across the globe to train leaders, develop community organising strategies and empower people to organise for change. And in 2021, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to make a difference, inspire, give hope and enable others to achieve their shared purpose. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com. Socially Democratic is also presented to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Would you like to work in sunny Queensland? Who wouldn't like to work in sunny Queensland and grow your leadership capability? Morris Blackburn, Australia's leading class action plaintiff law firm, is looking for an experienced office leader specialising in personal injuries law. This is a fantastic and varied role in regional Queensland, giving you the ability to mentor, coach and build a team to be the best that they can be. Support will also be provided for relocation costs to sunny Queensland. Uh, And to apply, go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. Be part of the change and fight for fair. Apply now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left political and cultural podcast that dives into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And on this week's episode, we are joined by the Deputy Leader of the Federal Parliamentary Labor Party and the Federal Member for Corio, Richard Miles. Richard uh, has been on the show before. And in fact, the last time he was on the show, um, we kind of got off on a whole bunch of tangents and he suggested that next time he comes on, why don't we talk about some of our favourite sporting moments that we have experienced over the years. And so today is a bit of a different episode. We're just going to really just talk about sport, which I'm pretty happy about. Um, I could do that all the time and I think so So could Richard. So today was a bit of a fun episode um, hearing from uh, from Richard and some of the experiences that he's had and some of the experiences I've had in terms of going and watching some of our favourite sports people um, both here in Australia and overseas. So that'll be a bit of a light-hearted episode amongst all the doom and gloom that is the Morrison federal government and their ability to not perform the only task that we asked them to do and that was to roll out a vaccine. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you're an Apple Podcast uh, user, please leave the podcast a rating and give us a review on your um, on your iPhone or your whatever you use to listen to the podcast. And to get all the updates uh, for the episodes, follow us at Dunstreet on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. Okay. Let's get to today's episode. Okay, we're taping this one on a Friday morning in uh, downtown Melbourne. We've had a glorious week um, in uh, Melbourne, which proves that God is indeed a Victorian. Um, And uh, joining me on the line from his car, I think, in Bendigo, um, which is appropriate as uh, he's there for a sporting event for one of his uh, kids, is the uh, deputy leader of the Federal Parliamentary Labor Party and the member for uh, Corio, Richard Miles. Welcome back to Socially Democratic. Stephen Donnelly, how are you? I'm very good. Now, last time you were on the show, towards the end, you threw down the challenge to me and said, next time I come back on the show, um, we should do a episode dedicated to um, our, our 
most memorable sporting moments that we have uh, experienced. And I think that came about because we kind of got super sidetracked in the show itself for some particular reason because you, you and I are both yeah. sport nuts. And in fact, after you said that, I did recall you and I happened to be flying to Sydney uh, and shared a cab from uh, the airport into the city. I think we were going to a Labor Party event and I can't remember what it was, but you and I got chatting away about this very topic. Um, and so with that in mind, we're now going to basically record that um, taxi ride um, yeah. fr- from the city, uh, from the airport to the city, in which we are going to list our top five sporting moments that we've experienced um, in our lifetime from five down to one. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay. Now, first of You're all, going first. I am going first. Um, now, I will preface this by saying um it was and i think you'll have the same challenge for a different um sport and different club but it was very difficult to not just list all top five moments uh, of the history of the celtic football club (laughs) um so i had to really try and uh get some level of diversity in my top five Uh, it is a little football association football not um afl heavy Um, but nonetheless my number five is actually um, an AFL game mm-hmm. and it is actually not the Carlton Geelong 1995 grand final. Um, I've done what? that one out of courtesy to you. I know yep, you probably I was there. Uh, and, indeed. And so was it's I. It's definitely not in my top five. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> I thought it was going to be that morning. Yeah. yeah. I was definitely prepping for it to be, but it wasn't. <laughs> but I've left it off um, um, because in the end, Whilst it was a great experience for a Carlton supporter, it actually wasn't a very good game. Um, it was not. It was. Um, so can I tell my memory, we're going to get sidetracked. My yeah. memory of that, I was there. Um, James Button, um, who uh, might be a good person for you to have on this podcast because he's um, uh, very much uh, socially democratic is where his head's at. But he, for a long time, wrote for the Fairfax and he did, he's a massive Geelong fan, and he did the most beautiful piece about being a Geelong supporter, uh, which was a, a feature in the age that, that morning. Um, and I, I was at the ground, like, you know, from about 8 a.m. I think I read that piece between about 9.30 and 10. Um, I, afterwards, I was in a mixture of, uh, I, I was crying emotionally about, you know, what that day was going to be. At the same time, punching me in, knowing this was going to be the drought breaker. Um, and that was the peak of the day. It only went <laughs> from there. I, and I, so, can, um, I can understand yeah. where you're coming from. That was a good team you had that year. That was... Uh, did. You had a really good season. Um, and I think and that you played Joel, um, Richmond in the preliminary we final. And we did. absolutely mollicated them. Yeah. And, and so we'd, we'd come in in form. Um, we had an easy run in, but you know it was all illusion, really, because Carlton lost two games that year. Um, I think David Parkin said it was the best team, you know, player-led premiership ever. Um, and in some ways, I I take some inspiration from that uh, for Geelong this year because it was an older Carlton side where they it was like it was one last time. Um, it, it was um, a bit like uh, you know the Michael Jordan doco, I reckon, for for that for that team. Um, and I'm kind of hoping that's what, what, what this year is for Geelong. But, um, but they were just dominant and they smashed this. It was fantastic. Okay. Very fantastic for them. Um, for us. Okay, so this is a very good start so for we, us because we have not talked about much. 
Okay, okay, you go first. Be... All right, okay. I'm gonna to get to I'm gonna to cut to the chase. It's September yeah. 18, 1999. It is the morning of two moments for me that day. One, it is the Victorian state election. Yes. And two, in that afternoon, it was the preliminary final between Carlton and Essendon. And Essendon, which you win by a point, I think. We do. Yeah. Uh, it was a day of underdogs. Um, I remember yeah. getting up at 5 a.m. and driving to Bentley to um, set up the booth and hand out for Rob yeah. Hudson yeah. Uh, and hand it out till lunchtime that day, not thinking that Labor had any chance yeah. under this new leadership of a guy called Steve Brax that was lampooned by the Murdoch press as Steve Who. Mm. Um, a very arrogant and up and about Jeff Kennett, um, dominant in Victorian state politics. Um, Victorian Labor was um, a, seen as a basket case. I remember our party membership cards were made of paper. <laughs> and uh, black and white, not even coloured printed paper, it was black and white. And uh, a pretty lean campaign. And I went and handed out that morning thinking, I'm just doing, I'm just doing the right thing because we're all Labor people yeah. and that's what we do. We just front up regardless, right? Yeah. And... Uh, said cheerio to the lovely people of the um, Bentley Labor Party um, that were handing out that day and said, I'm off to go watch a football game and probably see my football team get belted as well. So this is going to be a dark day for all involved. Um, not even thinking really about the election once I sort of got in the car and then drove um, to park near the MCG. Um, I don't need to say much more than that because it was an incredible game of football. Um, I before the podcast, I actually watched the highlights of the last quarter um, and yeah. the backing and the the back and forth, and never and my entire family are Essendon, and they were all yeah. that game. They weren't sitting near me. We can't sit near each other. Else we'll kill each other. Um, but yeah. um, I fear Essendon. It's those colours. It's Kevin Sheedy. Um, it's always you know they're a fast team. They're a young team. He's a very very unconventional coach. Um, and I just and we were a rubbish team. We lost eleven games that season, um, yeah. and we weren't meant to beat Essendon. And with you know minutes to go, we're up by a point, and we're just hanging on. And I remember Fraser Brown making this absolute goal-saving tackle on the fifty-meter line. I can't remember who it was. It might have been Mercedes or someone was running through. It was about to, you know basically kick a goal to win the game. Tackles him to the ground, spills the ball, and the ball cuts up the other end. And Justin Murphy's holding the footy as the siren went. And it was it was at that end of the ground that we were at. But there were some guys in front of us, Essendon fans, that were listening to 3LO, showing my age here, um, ABC Radio. And um, Tim Lane has said, you know, 10 seconds to go. And they've all got up and left. And when, that's when we've realised, oh, that's the ball game. And it was just euphoric. And I was so up and about about it, I left the stadium and I ran, I was working, I was the NUS president and I ran to Trades Hall. This is the days before mobile phones. I ran to Trades Hall to my office and got on the phone and started calling Essendon fans and abusing them. <laughs> Starting with my family and then moving down the list. Um, and when I got to the party, the election party in Williamstown, I was so up and about, about the football result that I couldn't comprehend what was going on in the election and that Labor has made this incredible um, comeback, particularly in the regions. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, this is this outcome isn't done. This is Labor's in with a chance here. Um, yeah. And it was hard for me mentally to compute the two highs that I was receiving here. And I remember seeing Harry Madden at the party and I said, Justin, w what a day. He thought I meant the election. I meant the footy and it was like, no, 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 I'm not talking about, oh yeah, that's great. But what, you know, and it was this kind of this, we weren't seeing eye to eye literally because he's six foot seven, but um, yeah, just an incredible day.
Well, you had your priorities right. I, I, I remember that day, uh, I think I was handing out in Lara during the day. Um, I'd come back at lunchtime, oh, late afternoon and, and heard the result and you know, was thinking, well, that wasn't meant to happen because it was meant to be an Essendon North grand final. Um, and, uh, um, and then, yeah, and then that night I, I just, I, I, like you, I was certain we were going to lose. Uh, and then as the returns are coming in, it suddenly dawns on me we're about to win. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, it was an incredible night. And in fact, that um, it then plays out over the next couple of weeks because uh, Geelong, the seat of Geelong, ends up being the seat which tips us over. And I, I you know, we win by less than twenty votes or something from memory in Geelong. It was kind of incredible. But uh, well, that's that's a good pick. It reminds me a little bit of um, uh, the prelim for Geelong in '94 against North, which got us into a grand final, which we then lost. But getting there was. Um, uh, was a remarkable moment. Okay, so my my number five. So I'm going to do do them a bit like you. That I'm going to do some collectively because uh, if I did if I did it purely on the moment, three of the top five end up being a, the three Geelong premiership. So um, that that makes for a boring list. So um, so I'm not. I'm going to do them collectively. So the first one is. Um, the opening match of the Digicel Cup, um, which is a rugby league competition in PNG, um, and I'm going to do that collectively with, with an event which is cheating a little bit, but it, but sport was really the only thing I can equate it to, which was the opening ceremony of the Festival of Pacific Arts, which was in Honiara. Um, both of those things took uh, one was in 2011, the other was in 2012. But I, I group them collectively because what this what they both were. Well, I mean, going to a sporting event is so much about the crowd, um, and uh, you know, and I think there there is something about um, you know the involuntary cheering when someone kicks a goal in footy, where you, at that moment you, you're almost not an individual; you are literally part of a collective. You are just doing what what a group of human beings are doing as one entity, um, and the crowd is so much what. Uh, being a sports fan is about and, and sort of uh, being there. And I'd never seen um, crowds, I, I mean, it, as, a, as, a, as an event which was kind of, and actually particularly the Festival of Pacific Arts, it was, um, so, so to give you a sense of what that was, every country would come and do their own dance and a lot, and if you think, um, if you think the Haka in terms of uh, rugby union with the All Blacks, um, lots of the countries in the Pacific have a version of the Haka, and so it was a series of those. But then, you know, a lot of the dancers were um, uh, men and women. Um, a lot of the dancers were, you might describe them. I'm trying to use the right language here, but they were courting dancers. <laughs> they were, um, you know. That they were um, uh, a lot of hip swaying, a lot of pelvic thrusts, or and what would happen is they would go. It was on a track. It was at a sporting stadium, um, and they would do them. Sort of, we were in the main stand, and they would do them for us, and and we were giving a sort of a, a polite response. But then on the back straight, um, that's where the crowds were going completely nuts. And whenever the, the the performers we'd just seen managed to get their way around there and did their version of the dance over there, the crowd went absolutely nuts. And there was um, a joy and a, a kind of uh, like a, a 
it was more than cheering. There was a kind of a high pitched, um, uh, you know, thrill really that was being expressed by the crowd, which was utterly infectious. And so it was, you know, the excitement of seeing a really good dance in front of us was partly about the expectation of what the crowd was going to be like when they saw that um, in the back straight. And in some ways, um, the, that first game of the Digicel Cup, which was the opening match of that season in in, in uh, Moresby at their main stadium, just the same. Like there was uh, um, an uncontrolled nature to the crowd with, where anything was, anything could happen, like anything was going here. Um, but it was an unbridled joy, uh, the like of which I, I don't think I've really ever seen before. So for... So for, for the, the the experience of the Pacific crowds, I put both of them in as number five. It's a funny point you make there. I don't I, particularly when I think about rugby union um, and the way that the uh, you know Australian rugby and New Zealand rugby are trying to work out what does Super Rugby look like at a at a provincial level these days because I think the South Africans are trying to peel, peel away from it. Why we're not engaging with Pacific rugby? They've got a great oh, tradition. Totally. Um, yeah. you know, um, and pulling together a, a, a team that does represent Pacific rugby and incorporating them into the, that elite competition. Yeah, I mean, that should, that, that should be happening. There, there should be a team in, in the rugby union comp which should be based out of Fiji um, and there should be a team in the NRL based out of um, Port Moresby. I yeah. mean, that, they, that, should, that should happen tomorrow. Um, and, um, you know, you talk about kind of the like Australia's geostrategic advantage in the region, that's it. Like mm. there, there, there is nothing, it is affinity, which is, is what we have, which no other country has um, with the Pacific. And affinity can be described in lots of ways or there's lots of examples of it, but there, there is no greater affinity than the, the shared love we both have of, uh, of those sports specifically. And, and in fact, you know, they're into, um, I mean, netball, uh, uh, T20 cricket, interestingly. PNG is a ranked T20 cricket team. Um, and um, uh, Australian test players have been involved in the coaching of that team. I mean, there's so much that could be done there. But um, And they love sport. I mean, they love it. They love it with the passion that you and I love it. Um, and everyone loves it like that. Uh, and it's just to... to uh, you, you, like the crowds at, at sporting events in the Pacific are just uh, as infectious as any crowd I've ever seen. Fantastic. Okay, good start. So number four. Number four. Number four is April 29, 2018. Um, and it, the setting is Celtic Park, Glasgow, Scotland. I was heading over to um, Europe for work to go to and speak at a uh, campaign and organizing conference in Brussels with a whole bunch of social Democrats from across um, um, Europe and North America. It also happened to coincide with um, Celtic um, needing to win one more game to secure their seventh uh, league title. And their opponents in this particular game happened to be their long historic rivals, Rangers, also known as the forces of darkness and evil. And I thought, wow, well, that would be a bit silly of me not to try to go to that game. But the, 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 the itinerary was pretty tight. And basically, I managed to get myself on a flight to London 
the morning of the game and then had to get a connecting flight from Heathrow to Glasgow, get my cousin to pick me up from the airport and drive me straight to the stadium in order for the game to, 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 to catch the game. And uh, I got tickets through my cousins. The trouble was when I landed at Heathrow, first of all, the flight was delayed out of Melbourne. Then it was delayed out of Singapore and it was delayed. We were circling, you know, Heathrow's like, you're, we're circling yeah. for about an hour and I'm just absolutely like, I'm sweating it going, I'm gonna miss this freaking game. We land, uh, I get to, I come off the gate and I said, I've got a connecting flight to Glasgow. And they said, okay, you know, this is an express thing. Just go run through there. So I do that, get to the gate, uh, get on the, it was like the plane was sort of sitting out in the tarmac. So we all jumped on a bus and it took us out on the bus and we got there and there was a mechanic pulling apart the engine. <laughs> and the guys, someone's told the driver of the bus, um, you know, this plane doesn't look like it's going anywhere right now. And I'm just like, I, I'm my face is pressed up against the window looking at this aeroplane saying, I'm so close. Okay. Um, anyway, they were mucking around for a bit and I'm just watching these guys and I'm just freaking out. And eventually they sort of close up the engine and look to the, I feel like he looks to me directly and then gives me the thumbs up like, yep, this is going. <laughs> and I was like, yes. Anyway, get on the plane, takes off, land in Glasgow. My cousin is waiting there for me and he literally breaks every speeding um record to get me to celtic park i missed probably the first two or three minutes get in there it was a glorious day the weather's never great in Glasgow. it was a beautiful day like the sun was shining yeah. um and i've ran across the stadium and i've never actually been outside celtic park during a game because normally you're always there beforehand the roar coming out of that stadium was just electric and my heart's now racing yeah. and i get in there and i take my seat and um we were up 3-0 within the first 30 minutes of the game. You I'm, saw all the goals? Saw all the goals. Yeah. Um, halftime, uh, by halftime, I'm delirious. Like, I don't know if it's yeah. jet lag or what, but, you know, we are absolutely humping our rivals in the game that's going to give us our, our title. Just absolutely humiliating yeah. for, for the people that we um, despise that are the opposition. Uh, and then by the 53rd minute, we're now up 5-0. And I've turned to my cousin, our record against Rangers is 7-1. And I said, this record's going to tumble today. And that, that record was in 1957. My dad was at that game. It, yep. d it doesn't fall because we sort of take the foot off the gas and just start playing kind of, you know, tapping it around and just lampooning the whole situation, which really annoyed me. I was like, no, don't take your foot off their neck. Keep going. <laughs> um, but it was just uh, like to, it, it, I was jet lagged and I took, it took me a while, maybe a day or two later to appreciate what I just witnessed. We'd never, yeah. We've never won the league against our rivals in our home stadium. Um, it was our seventh championship. We were going for the treble that year. And the other thing I would forgot about is how loud uh, uh, a Celtic Rangers game is. Like, There's loud in stadiums and then there's loud. This is regarded yeah. as one of the most fiercest, intensest rivalries in sport, not even just in football, but in right. sport. Um, you know, it's a kind of game that has obviously some pretty awful sectarian connotations to it as well. And you've got to be a bit careful in, in, the, in, the, in the moments afterwards. But... What, just an, an incredible moment to, to, to experience that. And, um, and I look back on that today and go, I can't actually believe I was at that game. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Um, okay. Well, my number four is also, um, uh, it's also uh, football, as in soccer. So this would be the um, January 2012 the opening match of the African Cup of Nations between South Africa and Cote d'Ivoire 
uh, not Cape de Vaya, no, uh, Cape Verde, Cape Verde. Um, and uh, it was at the stadium in Soweto, which is where they held the uh, World Cup final. Um, and it was, and again, this is really, uh, oh, sorry, this is really one for the crowd. Um, it was, um, it, it like, you remember that when the World Cup was in um, South Africa, we all, I think, I think it was the South African World Cup, we all were introduced to the Vuvuzela, yeah. um, which was the, and I'm not sure um, what the origins of it are, uh, but it's a, a plastic trumpet for want of a better description. Um, but they are not really very musical. You know, they just make noise. Yeah. Um, but everyone's got one. Like, I mean, the whole, like, it's insane. Everyone has one um, and they're all playing them. And it's pretty hard to get any sense of um, what the rhythm of this is. Like, do they play, are their, are their quiet moments are their louder moments? No, they just play them. They play them for 90 minutes. Um, that's what they do with those things, um, which was lucky because, it, as it turned out, the game itself was quite boring. It was a nil-all draw. But... Um, but to be in, but it's a it's a fantastic stadium. It's very um, kind of uh, you know it's, it's it's very important, I guess, to South Africa for this piece of infrastructure to be there in Soweto, which is really um, kind of the cradle of um, of well of the ANC, I suppose, is what, what how you would describe it. Um, I mean, this is the the place that Mandela. Um, uh, comes to political prominence, um, as, you know, and and really Johannesburg is is the place of, of kind of so much of the politics of um, of South Africa. So for this stadium to be there is really important. So it's pretty amazing to be there. Um, beautiful stadium, um, but the crowd. But you know, the other wonderful thing about that crowd is um, I don't know if you've been to South Africa, but um, you know, South Africa is. I, I, it, 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 like, I mean, it sounds very trite saying it now, but but um, you know, race obviously is a, la a large part of the history, the modern history, of the last few centuries history actually of, of South Africa. Um, and I guess for me at least in, in going there, it was very, um, you know, I, I felt like all of that was very noticeable and I think that it would be hard for it not to be given its its immediate history. Um, and none of these things are worked through overnight. You know, the, the, the sort of, uh, you're, not, you're not going to remedy apartheid, you know, in, in one act. I mean, apartheid had a, a legal underpinning, but it was cultural as well and that stuff takes time. Um, but one thing, um, and, and certainly there were, you know, there, there are aspects of life in, in South Africa, which where you see a, uh, you know, racial divide in, in, in the sense of things that are done by one race more than the other. But um, there on that night in that crowd, it, it was the Rainbow Nation that Mandela um, was sort of dreaming of um, when, when he spoke about um, South Africa's future, which is, really at the heart of the modern South African flag. Um, and so, so it was really great to see that, um, but, but from a pure sporting point of view and a crowd point of view, you know, a crowd that was totally alive and, and right up there as one of the, the great experiences I've had in witnessing sport. 
Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that um, about the, 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 your remarks about the Rainbow Nation because I, I, th- I think particularly the, the perception from, from an Australian sporting viewpoint of South African sport is rugby and cricket. Um, but the most popular sport in that country is football. Oh, totally it's football. Um, and, and and I think it would be, and, and so to be honest, my, um, you know, my, my preconception, I guess, going in there uh, was that it was, um, you know, that, that I wouldn't, it, it, it was, um, well, a black sport for want of a, a better term, but um, it, it uh, and I think that would be a fair description of most of the members of the team, but, but, but it was not the crowd. Like the crowd was real. It was a rainbow crowd. Mm. Um, and, um, and I think the whole nation had got behind um, South Africa and uh, around its soccer team. And I think uh, probably, you know, this was in the aftermath of the World Cup. So I feel like the World Cup was 2010. Um, it was held in, in, um, yeah, in, in South Africa. So this is two years after the World Cup final. And obviously that had kind of, must have had a sort of a, a popularising impact on the way the sport was seen across the entire South African population. And this was probably, I suspect, the biggest um, uh, tournament, really, that was being held um, in South Africa post that. Mm. Uh, a football tournament, I mean. Um, and um, so it was, it, like, it was the opening match. It was a, um, uh, it, it was not, I mean, South Africa was expected to do well. I don't think Cape Verde was expected to do anything. And so the fact that they managed to draw the game was probably a great triumph for them, a disappointment for the crowd. But, um, yeah, but it was a great thing to see. And, you know, the full stadium was magnificent. Mm. Okay. Very good. I'm going mm. to, I'm moving to number three now in my all time yeah. top five. And I'm sticking with football. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I'm going to go to the 23rd of June, 2006 which was the final group game that Australia was um, partaking in the FIFA World Cup uh, and it was against Croatia. That was the first time uh-huh. Australia had been in the World Cup since 1974. They had yep. obviously beaten uh, Japan 3-1 in Kaiserslautern, which was yep. an incredibly famous game. And then um, I was in uh, – I r- arrived for the Brazil game, tried to get tickets, but it was too expensive even for my tastes. Uh, so we watched it in like a, a park somewhere. But then I headed down to Stuttgart for the final group game, which was against Croatia. And Australia needed to draw to qualify for the knockout stages yep. of the game. Yep. Famous game. Indeed. And I met up with some um, old college friends of mine um, who are of Croatian extraction. Their parents are Croatian. Yep. Um, so there yep. were some divided loyalties in their minds. I think they were, I think he was wearing a crow hat and he had a, uh, an Australian yep. soccer jersey on. And in fact, yep. he was running into so many other Croatian Australians walking around going, yep. man, I don't know what to do about this game. This is killing me. Um, I never had a ticket. And so I was trying to scalp a ticket um, over the course of the two days I was down there and eventually I sort of settled on one ticket. Um, I, I bought it from a Croatian family who I then subsequently found out at halftime of the game. It was their father's ticket who sadly had passed away in the weeks leading up to the game. So I, I, I bought their ticket. But that oh. meant I was in the Croatian section. I was surrounded <laughs> in red and white checkered football jerseys. Yeah. And I've got in there and I've taken my seat and I'm wearing my bloody Socceroos jersey and standing out like, you know, the proverbial. And... Uh, Croatia score first in the second minute, uh, Dario Serna, and then Australia gets a penalty in the 38th minute and uh, Craig Moore slots it away. I don't celebrate. I kind of give a quiet like fist pump to myself and that's it. I'm showing no emotion. I'm respecting the people around me, mainly because they were six foot seven bald and they probably would have eaten me a life for breakfast. So I was behaving 
as good as I could. Second half begins. Croatia hit the lead again through uh, Nico Kovac in the 56th minute. So right now we are out. Um, and Australia just throws everything at it. Um, and it's tense. It's hot. I'm sweating. I'm, you know, just getting a bit delirious. And then, of course, Harry Kuehl equalises in the 79th minute with basically 10 minutes to go in the game to equalise. Yeah. And I can't contain myself. And yeah. I'm now up off the seat. And there are some Australians probably three seats down are also jumping up. And we're trying to high-five and I'm accidentally hitting Croatian fans in the yeah. back of their head. And it was just an amazing experience. And it was an amazing experience because um, I won, I'm not very jingoistic when it comes to Australian patriotism. Uh, I don't celebrate Australia Day or that kind of stuff. But being over in Germany for that World Cup, one, I grew up playing football as a kid and I got a lot of shit for it. Growing up in country Victoria, it was either, it was cricket and it was Aussie rules. And if you played soccer, you know, there was all, you know, I mean, what's his name? The late, great Johnny Ryan wrote a book about it. Um, and you got called all sorts of derogatory terms for playing this this, this foreign game. Um, but being over there and just seeing, you know, I think there was like 15,000 Australians that travelled to the, that World Cup and just seeing Australians everywhere and very, very well behaved and very respectful and but having a great time um, was just a, such a great experience. And I, for the first time, felt proud to, uh, I guess, carry my, my nation's colours um, in a, on, a, on foreign soil. And, the, and the, obviously the way that the team played across the tournament was amazing. Unfortunately, lost to Italy in the, next, in the knockout stages. But it just was the first time I went, this is great. I'm actually really, really quite proud to be Australian. And also football, going back to the point you made earlier about rainbow colours, I've always felt that the Australian soccer team is a better reflection of who we are as a nation than most of our mm. national sports mm. um, because it's a multicultural sport and it's because it's the sport of the multicultural community plus um, you know, multi-generational Australians as well. Um, I, I just um, it was it crystallised for me at that moment in Germany about um, in some ways what it means to be Australian. Uh, uh, great call, that I, I think I think that tournament um, and that game were profoundly important for Australia. Uh, I mean, the country um, in the and I think multicultural Australia. I think we learnt something about what um, our brand of multiculturalism is and what we do well. Um, and and because it asked so many, I mean that that game was was about um, you know the Croatian community. Um, we then play uh, uh, in the first round of the knockout. We play against Italy, who go on to win, and you know we could easily have beaten them. Like we're, like we're really competitive. I mean, it makes you wonder what might have actually been. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought we were going to win the game against Italy. Um, you know, when they um, they're down to ten people, I think they they one of their guys gets sent off. So for Italian Australians, again, it was um, you know this this um, you know what 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 does it mean? Like, and so there is a club in in Geelong um, called which is the North uh, Geelong Soccer Club. Um, as a lot of these community clubs have, uh, uh, they have a um, um, an ethnicity that that has has helped establish them. And the North Geelong uh, Football Club is uh, been established by the Croatian community. Um, they have uh, four internationals um, have come out of North Geelong. Um, Josip Skoko uh, came out of um, North Geelong. Um, uh, but so did Joey Didaluka. Um, Joey Didaluka played uh, a, a number of games for Croatia. 
he was there that day mm. in that he, he didn't he was a goalkeeper so he didn't actually go on but he was on the sideline on that day but he was in the stadium um i feel like Josip skoko was there as well um so you know from this one community club in geelong and so there they were um and they're, they're all up all night you know i think early hours of the morning is when this game was played in australian time um so there and and it is um this sense of you know, they've got people from this club playing on both sides. Um, they, uh, if it wasn't Australia, they would be going nuts for Croatia and any, but what, what does it mean? Um, and in a way, a two-all draw um, is exactly the result it should have been. Mm. And they were ecstatic. It's like, it's like that, that is what it should be. And, and, and the, the, the sort of, the, the joy on in the paper the next morning when they had pictures from that club of, of, of people from there um, about how good was that result? Like, how, how good was the game? How good is this moment? How good was that result? Um, and, you know, and they they felt crowd, proud to be... Uh, they felt proud to be Croatian-Australians on that day. And I think that, you know, our thing about multiculturalism, where, you know, where we do it, when, when we do it the best and where we do it the best in the world, unlike really any other country, is, you know, there is a notion of what it is to be Australian is to celebrate your heritage. Mm. Um, that, that, that celebrating what it is to be of Croatian heritage, um, if you are a Croatian Australian, is in fact a very Australian thing to do. To celebrate what it is to be Italian, of Italian heritage, as an Italian Australian, is a very Australian thing to do. That is what actually makes up our country, mm. um, and and not it's not really anywhere else in the world which kind of embraces that celebration of heritage in quite the same way as being something that makes us richer as a, as a whole. Um, and I really think the 2006 World Cup and everything that was that happened around it and 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 about the place of football within our society, as you've described, I, I think was a kind of I really do think was a, a coming of age of Australian multiculturalism. I, I think it was a, a huge moment, um, and and you know for um, you know people who hadn't necessarily grown up with football, um, it, it was it, like everyone was was um, just sort of you know relishing in it. Um, you know, it was a very good call. Uh, we could do a whole podcast, I reckon, on the 2006 World Cup. Um, Over to you. We, 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 we're getting we're getting such so so now. This is a, a another collective one. Um, I'm a huge lover of cricket, um, and I, I think um, a unique experience I had was um, as a nine year old. I went to the centenary test at the MCG. Um, and uh, I was there on day two um, when um, uh, Dennis Lilly and Max Walker ran through um, the English. We'd, we'd been bowled out for 120 odd on the first day. And I think uh, we knocked them over for 95 on the second day. And that was the day I saw. So it was a great day of cricket, um, but it was just an incredible celebration of the game. Every um, Everybody who'd played a an Ashes Test match. Um, who was alive? They tried to get there, and uh, and so the place was crawling with um, former Test cricketers. And I, um, with my godmother and my father and I, we managed to collect 
signatures on the back. Do you remember a first day cover like, with yeah. the stamps? We, right. So we bought a first day cover, um, this envelope, um, and we thought, because uh, they'd put out a, an edition of stamps for the centenary test. Um, and I was uh, thinking that would be a great thing to get signed. Um, well, on the back of that, and I didn't appreciate it at the time, and, and you know, it's on another story, but that, that envelope got lost about, you know, two weeks after the centenary test. And it wasn't until um, uh, probably uh, 40 years later, literally, that my dad found it in wow. the back of a drawer while he was cleaning out. Um, and we both looked at this envelope um, in amazement because on it were the signatures of uh, Bradman, Keith Miller, Ray Linwall, um, uh, I think uh, Gordon Brown, uh, not Gordon, uh, Gordon, uh, anyway, a, a number of English um, uh, captains, Gordon Brown's prime minister, a number of English <laughs> captains. Um, it was just the, this incredible thing. And that, that envelope is now framed in my office um, uh, in Canberra. But three years after that, uh, I then went to the centenary test. Uh, I was in England with my parents and we went to the centenary test at Lords. And it's the first time I went and saw um, the home of cricket, which is just, uh, you know, uh, well, that's a, you know, semi-religious experience really to, to be sitting there seeing the weather vane of old father time, you know, uh, there. And, uh, and we, I think Kim Hughes got a century in that game. Uh, ends up being a draw that centenary test, but just to, to kind of see both um, both those matches in probably the two most famous career grounds in the world um, is a very fond memory and and speaks to you know my love of that game. My dad took my two oldest brothers to the centenary test at the MCG um, as well. That you've witnessed, I think, arguably one of the greatest test matches of yeah. all time. Yeah. And, and you know, people will, it's, it's um, well, talking about kind of religious experiences. I mean, if you, um, it, it might be proof of a divine being that um, the, the, the score at the end of the centenary test, um, and you know how, like, I mean, the epic of a five-day test match um, and how rare a, a draw is, a, a tie rather is, um, that, that it is precisely the same result as it was 100 years earlier. Um, in that centenary test, um, but everything happened. You know, Randall's century. You know, McCosker getting um, hit and then coming out um, in the second innings. Uh, yeah, Lily. Uh, Lily, I think it's ten for in the match, um, but I think he's six for in that first innings. Um, it was fantastic. And the old M- the old MCG as well. The old Southern Stand, which had old a, had an outer. And my stories, my brother so told me good. about that. That you would go to the game and you would take one of those polystyrofoam eskies that would be full yep. of your the beer in that, and you would stand on that polystyrofoam foam esky so you could see better. But of course, yep. as you take beers out of it and drink it throughout the day, it's less structurally sound for a full-grown person <laughs> to stand on top of it and eventually exactly. it would shatter and so when you're leaving yeah. the stadium in the day it's like the last scene from the battle of the zulu like it's just <laughs> the ground is crushed cans and crushed polystyrofoam former eskies and some dead bodies lying around as well because they've clearly passed out in the heat of the australian sun Totally. Although going back to the 70s, which is when we're talking about then, um, cans of beer were made of a stronger um, tin, you know. Um, it was steel. And so you needed, they, they were, I think they were steel. And so you needed six of them 
as a as a nine or a ten year old to be able to perform to form a platform for yourself, which you'd line up at the footy, you'd be sort of searching for you <laughs> like really scaly exercise when you think about it um but you, you would accumulate them and that would give you a little platform which meant that you got you know as a as a kid you got a slightly better vantage point yeah very very good i regret it's yeah. one of my regrets i wish i was at that game i wish i was old enough to be at that game i think it was three so it clearly wasn't anyway very good I, i'm impressed by that okay number two number two um and it takes us to october 30 2013 that's one of my worst boston accents i've ever done in my life um yeah. it is an election year um and um earlier that year i had been in boston with a colleague of ours that now works for the premier daniel andrews and we went over there on a fact-finding mission uh to meet with a whole bunch of people from the obama campaign to work out how we were going to build a campaign to try and hopefully get daniel elected in 2014 and we were in yep. we were in Boston for a couple of days meeting with some folks there, uh, and it was a couple of days before the Boston Marathon, uh, or not a couple of days, so probably about two weeks before the Boston Marathon. Uh, and then we've come home, and um, those meetings basically were the, the the genesis of the Community Action Network and sort of launching that in the twenty thirteen federal campaign, which obviously wasn't a great campaign for Labor, uh, but you know there was a silver cloud that came out of that. So at the end of that campaign, I was pretty knackered, throwing everything at it had a um, kind of went back to work and then the Boston Red Sox who were having an impro improbable season because um, they'd finished last year before um, were looking to make the postseason. They make the postseason. Um, they come up against the Detroit Tigers in the American Championship Series. Um, they managed to beat them who were the highly fancy team to, to go through the World Series. They make the World Series um, and... Um, I am driving home. No, I'm driving. I, what I was doing, I was going to work during the day and I was watching the games at night. So I was trying to not find out the score throughout the day. Um, and I think it was like game one or game two of the actual World Series against this uh, St. Louis Cardinals. Sorry, I should say this was Boston. This is the Boston Red yep. Sox versus the St. Louis Cardinals. Um, I'm driving to work and I'm going, you know, this, this is too risky. I can't go through the day not finding out the score. I'm just going to have to go to Boston to watch them the, hopefully win the World Series. <laughs> But I was sort of joking to myself a bit about it. Ha, 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 that'd be funny to do that. You know, I got to my desk and I basically turned on my computer and I started looking for tickets, flights and accommodation in Boston. Turns out this was possible. Uh, so I did it. I booked my tickets. But the problem was is the Red Sox were now currently down 2-1 in the series. And game four, if they lost that, they'd be down 3-1, meaning that the chances, it's best of seven series... Uh, down 3-1, um, they're one game away from elimination and I've now just bought tickets, flights and accommodation to something that may not happen. So they needed to win game four to make it sure that it at least goes to game six back in Boston. They win game four, four uh, runs to two and I get on a flight and I head to Boston. Um, now, that year, the Boston Marathon is, um, 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 that's the year of the bombing. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, and partly, I think, history is now going to show that I think part of the reason why the Red Sox did so well is that they think that that, that moment in that the impact on that city, the impact it had on that city and the impact it had on that team kind of galvanised them in a way. Um, Fenway Park, um, the marathon runs past Fenway Park. Um, the marathon happens on Marathon Monday or Patriots Day. 
um, in April, which is coming up next week, um, the Red Sox play early so people can leave the stadium and then go watch the finish of the marathon. The marathon's a huge event in, um, in Boston. So for this to happen and for people to die and you know, these bomb blasts go off, it kind of really impacted the city in a way that um, I think um, some people probably don't understand from outside the city. But I got a sense of it when we were there because it's just sort of, um, if you haven't visited the city a lot, you, you, get, you develop friendships with people and you get a sense of um, what was going th- through the minds of people in New England in that year. So to make the World, Se- the World Series kind of, it felt like this was, this was our year, this was meant to happen. And so to be there for that experience in itself was pretty cool. And, and I caught up with some friends of mine at a pub before the game. Um, so it landed like the day before. So once again, jet lagged for a bloody sporting event overseas. Um, and uh, went to the stadium, um, Fenway Park. It's you know if anyone's ever been, it's the oldest major league ballpark in in the US. They really haven't changed too much of it. Um, I had a seat way out in the bleachers. You know, pretty working class kind of crowd in there. Um, Seven thirty start, friggin' freezing cold because it's now late October. Um, I'm rugged up to the max, but this the the noise you, you get warmth from the people in that stadium. Um, and you know, the, my me- most memorable moment from that game is the bottom of the I think it was the bottom of the third innings, um, two outs, bases loaded, scores are currently uh, nil each, no runs yet, and Shane Victorino for the Red Sox steps up and hits this um, looping ball that doesn't just quite get over the green monster, hits the wall. He drives in three runs, socks ahead, and just the stadium just comes comes alive. Um, it's unbelievable. And from that moment on, it was—I mean—they end up winning the game quite easily. But it was just a great experience. And I was in—I was in Boston for the next sort of two weeks, and they have the big duck broke parade where the teams go through the city, and it was just a, a wonderful, wonderful experience, and great to sort of share that with the people of Boston. Um, and having been a Red Sox fan, it was just—you um, know—it was my second greatest sporting highlight I've ever had. So have you always been a Red Sox fan? I came to them uh, late in life, to be fair. I was a My American sports uh, journey began with the Boston Celtics and that's only because of um, my football Celtics. team being Celtic. Yeah. Um, and uh, basketball in the early 80s took off, in the late mid to late 80s took off and everyone was going for Michael Jordan and the Bulls and I picked a team and I went, well, I'm not doing that. I'm going to go for the Boston Celtics. My sister-in-law is also American. She brought me back a... Um, like a Letterman starter jacket for the Boston Celtics, which I still have uh, and it still fits me. Um, so that was, I sort of, I followed the Celtics all through my, you know, teenage years. And it was only later that I jumped onto the Red Sox when I started, a, I was reading the Boston Globe and reading about this other baseball team and their storied history and lovable losers and all that kind of stuff. And I kind of fell in love with the Red Sox. And that kind of led me onto a um, journey. Okay. So I'm going to America as well with my, my number two, but just, uh, I, um, I had a first playoff game in uh, the 2011-12 NBA season, which Miami Heat win, um, and LeBron is playing for Miami Heat. I actually went and saw the first of those games, which I think was, uh, I feel like it was the Knicks versus um, uh, the Miami Heat, but it was at um, the uh, American Airlines Stadium in, in Miami. Um, and um, uh, so that was that was great, but that's not it. Um, and then I also my other one was I, I went to the Oakland uh, Coliseum in two thousand and three um, and saw the first of the playoff games there in the baseball um, for the Oakland Athletics, um, and that is the Moneyball year. 
you know, the movie, yeah. Moneyball. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So I had no idea what I was looking at, but I was looking at the Moneyball team. Um, so that, that was pretty cool. Anyway, my number two is is neither of those. My number two is, um, uh, and it's, a, again, collective. I, I have had the great um, luck, really, of uh, going to the US Masters twice. And we are, um, the US Masters is on as we speak. Um, and... Um, uh, so I went in 2008 when Trevor Immelman won and I went again in 2014 when Bubba Watson won for his second time. Um, and, uh, and like, I, you know, I'm a massive golf nut um, and I've seen, you know, we could, again, we could do a whole podcast on golf that I have watched. Um, there's, uh, I, I suppose 2008, um, I, you know, I'm a, a huge Tiger Woods fan. I, I think, Again, there's a podcast about sporting magic we have seen as sports fans. There are three people, but one for me in my time, I I won't go into them all now, but one of them is Tiger. Um, And I remember my father, uh, when he, you know, used to tell me that he had seen Bradman score a century, which he did um, in, I think, the 46, 47 series after the war. Um, And I... You know, often stuck with me. Imagine having actually seen Bradman, um, and um, for me, the contemporary version of that is um, Tiger. Um, I-, I wanted to see Tiger, and so for the four days of that that, that Masters tournament, I-, I saw every hole that Tiger played. Um, Tiger came second. He turned out he was playing on a bung knee, which we didn't know at that point, but played out very famously in the 2008 U.S. Open um, a-, a couple of months later. Um, but he, he was, he, he did have a, uh, an injured, well, that same knee was injured at, at that, um, event. Um, but, uh, to follow the great man around, to be able to tell grandkids, I hope I have one day that I saw him play. I actually saw Tiger Woods play and I saw him play at the masters and I saw him come second, um, you know, is like, is a massive highlight for me. And then just. Augusta. I mean, it, it's the closest thing to that tournament. Is the closest thing to perfection I've seen. Like you, you know, you go to a lot of things and you think, how could you make it better? There, there is nothing you could do to make that. Like it, it, that tournament is is so beautifully presented. The course is so beautifully presented. I mean, everything is a work of art. Like the 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 way they mow the lawns is a work of art. Um, they, you know, I was there on the, the, the day before, um, so the, the last of the practice days, and you would see people with nail clippers cutting the grass around the edge of the sprinkler heads so that it is all completely perfect. Um, they, when they mow the lawns first thing in the morning, and I've seen footage of this, but I actually saw it in real life, um, they don't have one mower going back and forth. They, they mow it against the um, sort of... Uh, well, well, they create a grain in the fairway, which which goes against the run of the ball, so that the balls don't go as far. Um, but to do that, they literally have about five mowers all in this kind of um, a- a alignment, literally going down um, the fairway in one hit. And then behind them are an army of people with these large bamboo sticks, which are sweeping the ground, which is this sort of odd thing. But when you realise what they're doing. They're breaking up any clumps of grass that fall off the mowers, so that there is not even a clump of grass there. Um, 
and and the, like it, it, you could set this thing to music. It it, it is so <laughs> fantastic to to watch. Um, and it's completely so so to just to be there. And I remember, you know, um, first day, um, the to me the thirteenth green at Augusta, which for golf fans it's very iconic. It's kind of encircled by these bunkers, which kind of face the wrong way, so you can see the bunkers. Um, as part of the picture of the of the green, um, and then there's uh, a tributary of Ray's Creek, which goes right in front of the green, and it is it is like it's just beautiful. Um, and so I get onto the course. I, I literally run, and you're not allowed to run. Like if you get run, you get mm. you, you get thrown off the course. So I'm power walking as fast as I can down there. It's just me, and there's no one else there. And I'm looking at this thing, and I'm thinking it is just possible that the plane crashed in the middle of the Pacific and I am now in heaven mm-hmm. um, because it, it was, you know, fantastic. And, and those, those um, cherished, cherished moments, both of them to, to have seen the, the U S masters. Uh, two questions. The first one, why in particular did you choose those years? Or was it just because you could get away to it? Uh, or was there something that was just the opportunity? Yeah. yeah. Second question yeah. is Tiger Woods, the greatest golfer that has ever lived. Um, it, it, so that that's a long question as well. There, there's, um, I I think there are, you know, three great golf careers is is probably what you have to say. Arguably, there's a fourth, but the the the, the three are Bobby Jones, Jack Nicklaus, and Tiger Woods. Um, and you can, um, if there's a fourth, it's Harry Varden. But we're going back into early history there. Um, in terms of those three, you can make an argument. You, you know, you can make an argument for uh, any of them. Um, I, I suppose Jack has the best stats, or you know, he's won the most majors. So you, you know, that's probably who wins the argument at the end of the day. But um, but you can certainly make an argument for Tiger. I mean, the the fields are much more competitive now than they were then. Mm. Um, you, you, in a way, you can do a measurement, which is um, you, you know. Jack wins 18. His next best is somebody like Gary Player, who wins nine over that period. Um, so he's kind of won twice as many as number two. Mm. Well, over the period that that the Tiger has played golf, uh, he's won 15. The next best is five. Mm. You know, he, he's kind of three times better than number two. So I think that says something about the level of competitiveness of of, of the majors now compared to then. Um, and so I, you know, I I think probably winning 15 now is is you know, a bigger deal than winning 18 in the time of Jack, but that's hard to compare. And then, you know, you do look at Bobby Jones, who's um, uh, who was an amateur, who um, never turned pro, um, who was consistently beating the pros, uh, who in 1930 wins the four main tournaments, which was the US Amateur, US Open, British Amateur, British Open. He set out to do it and he did it, like, no, like mm. completely unbelievable, and then retires. Um, I think at the you know ripe old age of 28, 29. Um, and if you, you know, really, if you sort of look at, I mean, in those days, the US Amateur was clearly a major tournament in the way that it's not now. So if you can't like trying to do your best in equating what were the main tournaments then relative to now, you know, really there are three great, like Jones wins 14, um, Tigers 15, Jacks 18, and then next best is sort of probably nine, something like that, um, depending on how you measure it. Um, so, 
So I think that's where I get to in my head. There are three great careers and he's one of them. And, and I got to see him. And, you got to- and I saw him in Australia. I've seen him a few times. I saw him when he came out and played in the last President's Cup at the end of 2019. Um, I hope to see him again. Um, but uh, but that, that year, in 2008, he started that year winning uh, like seven straight tournaments. Um, well, I thought he was going to win the, the Masters. Um and, uh, and we didn't know he was injured. So he, he was, it was at the peak of his powers, albeit I guess we were seeing somebody who was carrying injury, but um, just fantastic. And, and the crowd around him, fantastic. And he makes um, a putt on the final day on the 11th green, which just gives him a sniff. Like at that moment, there's just, a, you know, maybe he can do it. And the roar, which is an amen corner for people who know the course. Um, so it's where the biggest crowd is. The roar was something else so I've, I've heard i've heard a tiger roar in the, in the heart of the us so that, that's yeah definitely one one to count the way that you talked about the 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 augusta course before horticulturalists would be um just weeping with joy the, the, your description of that grass there it it, it it's amazing and, and it's it, it's it's um i mean you, you can't go into it it's the only economy in any form i've ever come across which where that, like that club has endless money, like it has more money than it can spend. I mean, it's Augusta National at the end of the day is a golf club which maintains one 18 hole course and a, and a nine hole par three course. Um, that's what it's there to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet the, the TV rights alone uh, for the Masters are, you know, I don't know, hundreds of millions, I suspect. Um, and so the, the amount of money they have to spend on those 18 holes is unlike any anything else so underneath the entire course is this suction system there was a moment where it was raining there was a 45 minute rain delay some puddles had formed and then there's this noise like you're at an airport and a plane's about to take off um and it's this suction system under the, under the and puddles just disappear just sucks them out of the ground like immediately um there are heating coils on the every green they talk about you know how is it that these the azaleas always flower for the masters well the answer to that is because there's heating lamps on every one of them on the weekend beforehand like it, it, it is just and and if you knew nothing about golf and you just wanted to see one of the most extraordinary botanical gardens in the world you would go to augusta national and every hole is named after a flower and along the hole um you see the, the that particular flower showcased it's like my mum who's not wouldn't really be that excited about the golf but would love seeing you know, a beautiful garden would love Augusta National. That's um, anyway, I could I could go on forever. Really? So number one, okay, number one for me in my all-time top five sporting events that I've attended. Now I know a lot of my cousins uh, in Scotland and and who have and the diaspora uh, are listening to this episode, and I think they know what I'm going to mention. When I all I need to say is one word, which is Seville. For those who are not uh, aware of what that means. Uh, it takes us back to 2003 and it's the UEFA Cup final. So we're talking about association football again. And uh, Celtic make their very first European final since they lost to Ajax in the, um, the European Cup in 1970, which is now the Champions League. But they had this, in, in this um, remarkable run in a knockout tournament to get all the way to the final, which um, was um, held in the southern... Spanish uh, capital in Andalusia, uh, in the town of uh, Seville or Sevilla, and they came up against the Portuguese champions uh, of Porto. Um, I actually had been in Scotland um, uh, a month earlier for my long um, vacation. And I came home 
and uh, you know, went back to my day job. Uh, and then Celtic won the semi-final against another Portuguese team, Boa Vista. And I, did, I just didn't think we'd get that far. Uh, and the next day I sort of was at work and I was just sort of tapping away and looking at, you know, what's, what's the chances of getting, you know, tickets or anything to go to this final. But thinking that's not going to happen. One, I had no more money because so I just spent all my money on this buddy trip. Uh, and then my brother, my oldest brother calls me up and says, do you want to go to Seville? And I went, I knew you were going to do that. And I'm really annoyed you've done that because now it's definitely in my head. Um, and on that weekend, a friend of mine who um, works for the Commonwealth Bank and is our goalkeeper in our soccer team at halftime, I sort of nestled up beside him and said, Sean, how quickly can I get a bank loan? And he went, I knew you were going to ask me that. You're going to get a Seville, you're going to get a Seville aren't you? And I said, I'm thinking about it. I'm just trying to work it out. So the challenge was here, it wasn't actually easy to get a ticket to the game. The stadium only holds 55,000 and everyone wants to get a ticket for this match in terms of the Celtic support, not just in Scotland, but around the world. Um, accommodation was hard to come by. There's not actually a lot of hotels in Seville. We end up staying in a town called Cadiz, which is about 100k south on the coast. Anyone is ever going to go visit Spain, please go to Cadiz. It is a beautiful little town um, on the, on the, on the, um, is it on the Mediterranean or is it actually in the, no, I don't think, I think it's on the Atlantic. Yeah, it is on the Atlantic. Um, yep, and they make warships there. They, there you go. Um, so we, we end up getting a combination there. Uh, the match ticket, um, we got that through like one of those sort of Amex. Um, we knew someone who had an Amex um, platinum card and had that concierge service and you can they can get you tickets for whatever, but they charge a roaring bull. And I'm not going to tell you how much I paid for that ticket, but it was insanely stupid. But... We managed to get our tickets. The hardest thing was to get flights. Now, getting from Melbourne to Europe was fine, but getting to Seville was nearly impossible. And we're on the phone to the travel agent, also showing our age because who does that anymore? Um, and the travel agent saying, Stephen, I'm sorry, but I, I just can't get your flight into Seville. This is not even peak season. I don't understand it. Every flight is literally booked up. Like this is physically impossible to get you into the flight on these days that you want to. Cut a long story short, we finally get some weird route flight from Heathrow to Charles de Gaulle, had to get a bus to Orly, then a flight to Madrid, and then it connected to Seville, got in there. Anyway, we arrive in Seville. Remember, the stadium only holds 55,000. There's only been about 10,000 tickets allocated to the Celtic support. There are 95,000 Celtic supporters in Seville for the three days leading up to the game. When we got to Melbourne <laughs> Airport, we were in the queue to get out to check in with about 30 other Celtic supporters. When we got to <laughs> Singapore, about another 40 Celtic supporters got on the flight. By the time we got to Heathrow, the airport was just a wash of green and white. They predicted that in the three days leading up to the game, 4% of international flights were booked by Celtic supporters. Wow. And when we arrived there, the city was just a wash with, you know, thousands and thousands of Celtic supporters. And not just from Scotland and Ireland. I'm talking, you know, the, the, the city square. If you've been to Seville, there's this beautiful Catholic cathedral in the main square. And that's kind of where everyone hung out. And there was all the supporters' flags from New York and Boston and Baltimore and Buenos yeah. Aires, Tokyo, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, Perth, uh, Hong Kong. You know the Middle East, all through Europe. It was incredible, and it was just a it was a it, it was it, it was a pilgrimage, um, and it was a festival for three days leading up to the game. I, one of the one of the way to sort of summarize it and how we how the support just kind of immersed itself into this city and just fell in love with it. The locals and locals fell in love with us. There was a school group being led on a school excursion to go to the cathedral. The probably, you know, um, 10-year-old kids in their school uniforms all walking through this 
throng of hundreds of thousands of Celtic supporters being led by the school teacher waving a little yellow flag like they do in the museums, right? And they're all holding hands and walking single file through this, you know, thousands of drunken Celtic supporters all singing and carrying on. And everyone sort of got out of the way and made a, like, like, like a, um, a, um, a guard of honour to let them walk through. And they're terrified. They're looking around up at all these people in kilts and freaking you know, the whole thing, right? Uh, and they walk through. And everyone's singing songs at them and all that kind of stuff and whatever. An hour later, that same school group comes back. But this time, they're not in their school uniform. Or they are still in their school uniforms. But on, on top of them, are they're wearing Celtic jerseys and scarves and flags. They're completely decked out in Celtic kit. The teacher's not flying that little yellow flag anymore. She has a massive Irish tricolor that she's waving <laughs> as she walks through the crowd. And everyone sees this and the, the place just erupts and everyone starts singing to these kids. And they're like, they're, they're, you know, they're now converted. They are absolute full-on self-supporters. Yeah, yeah. Can't speak a word of English. And that was, it was like that for the whole, the whole trip. And everywhere, just everywhere you went, um, p- people, the, 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 the locals completely looked after us. The stadium is actually a bit of a walk out of town. Um, probably, I don't know, like further than the MCG, like triple the distance from the city. Um, and it was a really, really hot day. It was a night game. Um, and um, I remember sort of with my brother and I, we sort of bar hopped all our way out to the stadium and t- dropped into little tapas bars and had a couple of drinks and some tapas and that kind of stuff and made our way out to the stadium. Um, and just even that walk was just amazing because you weren't mm. walking, you know, it was there was thousands of people walking there. But we're all yeah. kind of wondering... Well, if they've allocated 10,000 tickets to supporters um, and the stadium holds 55,000, you know, what's what? Because normally what it's going to be like sort of, you know, 10,000 Porto fans, 10,000 Celtic fans, and the rest is kind of like, you know, wealthy UEFA executives and all that kind of stuff, yeah. like a normal grand final in, 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 a, in an AFL sense. Um, when we walked in there, it was there was the Porto end, which had their 10,000 allocation, and then the rest of the stadium was a sea of green and white. It was basically a, wow. home, a home game. Um, wow. And uh, the atmosphere inside that stadium was just remarkable for the entire game. And uh, the result? We lost in extra time, 3-2. Oh. We came from behind twice. Henrik Larsson, who is a modern-day Tiger Woods for the Celtic support, a Swedish guy, um, scored two cracking headers for us. But we just ran out of juice. We had a player sent off in extra time and Porto, which in the end, which is a better team. They were then coached by Jose Mourinho, who then the next season went on to – that team went on to win the European yeah. Cup. They, they were a really good side. Um, and I remember just being absolutely devastated by the result. <laughs> Funnily enough, a guy sitting next to us was from Frankston. Wow. Um, and um, Billy Conley was kind of like 10 rows behind us and Rod Stewart and, you know, all this sort of stuff. The game was amazing. The atmosphere was incredible. The singing was amazing. I almost passed out on the second goal and I just like I sung my heart out like just to get this team over the line. But walking out of the stadium and we sort of went back into town, I remember sort of sitting on like a sitting on a, uh, on a, like a, um, on a, on a side curb out the front of a bar just having a drink w- with my brother. The city was quiet. Like there was still, you know, 85,000 fans everywhere, but they were quiet. And I think they were kind of just reflecting on what they just experienced, not just in terms of the game, but the last three days and um, we were disappointed that we didn't win, but we realized that we'd been a part of something incredibly special. And there was an article in the, in the Glasgow Herald the next day by a very well-respected Scottish journalist who said, um, last night Celtic proved that they are more than a sporting team, but they are a social, a social and cultural phenomenon. Yeah. And it's true. It really is. Yeah. And it, for that moment there, it kind of crystallized why, I'm a, why, why I stupidly follow this football team around the world. Yeah. And my cousins and my nephews and nieces and that, they've all said, I wish I was old enough to go to Seville. 
I just why I want us to get that chance again, and I don't know the way that European football works now. It's so much stacked against sort of teams like Celtic um, to sort of you know um, the, the, the 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 way that money operates in European football now. It's you know the Liverpools and Manchester's and the Italians and the Spanish teams that are always going to dominate and make European finals. But for that brief moment, we kind of broke that mold and just had yeah. an experience that. And it's my number one moment. Yet we didn't win. Even and, though you lost, it, yeah. And a friend of mine, a friend of yours and I, Tom Cargill, called me up after the Red Sox won the World Series. He called me when I was in Boston. He said, Stephen, does this make it number one? And I said, you know what? No, it just yeah. doesn't. But I, I, well, you know, my my number one really is the same, the same idea. Um, there's certain sport which, um, you know, I, I put golf and cricket in this category where, you know, you marvel at the at the game, um, but then there are um, there are some things which are uh, which are tribal. There, there, and and it's what that the Glasgow Herald journalist was saying. You know, that it, there's a social um, and cultural dimension to it, which is much bigger than the sport. And I think, um, you know, football in Europe is obviously that. Um, Aussie rules for us, I think, is the closest we get to that. And for me, that's that's the Geelong Football Club. Um, and that's that's what my – so my collective number one is obviously the Cats winning those three flags in 2007, 9-11. But I can remember in 2007, it was, um, uh, you know, the games in September, we, we – uh, there's an election in November. So we're two months out and I'm door knocking during that week. Um and, and around Geelong. And in grand final week 2007, when it really did, and we hadn't won a premiership for 44 years, so it really did look like um, maybe something extraordinary was going to happen. I reckon, you know, two out of every three houses in Geelong had something in their window which identified with that, with the football crime. And there was, there is no other um, cultural or social phenomenon in Geelong which unifies um, people in a, remotely in the same way as, as what the footy club does in in when it's going well um and and you realize that you know this is not this isn't just sport you know this is something else this is and and it and it is and the following of it you know sometimes i think i i put so much we, well you meet the players a whole lot of them are kids <laughs> you think do they have any idea <laughs> the extent to which I'm emotionally invested in what they do? Um, like, you know, and, and they don't is the answer to that question. Um, but they really are the custodians of our, of our emotions. But I think that's part of it. You know, like you, you submit yourself to something over which you have no control, which is therefore by definition bigger than yourself. Um, but you are there, you are there to be part of um, whatever that narrative is, um, and, and what it is, 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 is the community to which you belong. Um, and for me, that's where I live. And it's something which is wonderful about supporting Geelong, but the story you've just told, that's a global community of, of Celtic fans around the world who came together in that moment. And I can absolutely get, um, what it was for you to, to, to be there. Um, and, and for us to win in 2007, you know, each of those three premierships have their, um, their own different character for me. Um, but, but, you know, probably the most, uh, in some ways, the most sort of collectively memorable is the 2007 because it's the, it's the drought breaker and, and Geelong just goes nuts. And it really does change the town. Like it really, um, Sleepy Hollow, which is how Geelong's been described, it died on that night. No, no one called it Sleepy Hollow after that. Um, 
there, uh, you know, I, I, I like to think what Geelong's about now is a kind of a humble excellence, you know, that that's um, we, you know, we, we don't overstate ourselves, but, but we're, we, we're good at lots of things, you know, just, I'm not just footy, you know, things at Deakin Uni, um, um, there are some really fantastic companies that come out of Geelong Costas as an example, um, humble excellence, but it starts with the footy club and, and it's really, about the way in which that club spoke for um, an, an entire community and gave it a completely different um, sense of itself. It was, it, 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 you know, it was a remarkable experience about the, um, you know, the the importance of sport within our culture and the power of it, and the power of it to produce joy and to make life just so much better for. You know, a whole lot of people for whom this is what you know. There's not necessarily a lot else there, that, but this is this is a this is a really central thing. I think the other, if I think about those three, probably 2011 was the most satisfying. It was the one we didn't expect, and it was just a real vindication of um, of the quality of the organisation. Um, and I think personally for Chris Scott, who who is one of the best, uh, maybe the best people management exercise I'd ever seen, coming into the club at the end of. 2010 and being able you know and it was pretty in, it was pretty distraught with um the loss of bomber as the coach and then the loss of gary ablett but sort of pulling together and win was was incredible but but perhaps if i was to go to a moment um it is 2009 um which is the close one and that's uh you know we win in the last few seconds of the game really um where there's a um a toe poke um in in the center of the ground uh, Matthew Scarlett um, and Chappie, Paul Chapman ends up snapping a goal. He gets on the other end of that that chain of um, of, of play, um, and it puts us up. And then we know we're going to win at that moment. Um, and for me, you know, I had, um, you know, I wanted family to be with me. Like I wanted to share these moments with with people close to me because that's kind of what sports about. And on one side of me was my father who. Um, I had been, you know, growing up, I went to my first game with my dad. I went to all the games at Kidney Park with my dad. Um, you know, he was elderly at that point. He's since left us, but he, he you know, he's passed. But, he, but you know, it was a, to, to share that moment with him was wonderful. On the other side of me was my son. Um, so there are three generations of us. Um, and he would have been... Um, 13 uh, at the in 2009 yeah he would have been 13 um, and um, again it, it just uh, sort of like I had taken him to a whole lot of games which sort of there'd been um, a lot of heartache for him in the early days when we weren't winning um, and you know to be able to share that with my son on one side of me my father on the other um, three generations um, completely connected by the the following of this game was you know really one of the most special moments in my life like it really it really is one of the most special moments in my life because it's not just it's it's not just about sport at that moment it, it's absolutely about family um and and the sense of um connection um and, and shared joy that came at a very personal level in that moment really you know, I, I mean, people laugh at this, but I kind of, as we're doing our top five, when I look at the top 10 moments in my life, um, 
you know, my my marriage, the birth of my kids are obviously the the most important moments. But but you know, not not far off them. Um, it's, it's in the kind of next category are those three premierships unquestionably um, because it's it, it, it like it's deep inside you but it's not but it, it's not a and it's not a shallow thing it's it, 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 it it's about a, a, an, an investment of emotion over a lifetime but it's also ultimately about family as well it's about a, um, a connection with your immediate family and a connection with a with a broader family that, that you are a part of and that you can speak a language with, even if you've never met the people in that family before, just as you did in Seville with, with those Celtic fans. Um, and it, yeah, I, I think um, at the very heart of what it is to be a human being, um, that that it's, it's right there, like it's really right there. Um, and uh, I can't wait for that day to happen again for all of those bigger reasons i don't know when i hope it's going to happen this september um but it's um you know it's uh yeah it was very very special i'm really glad we've done this yeah me too <laughs> it's been a lot of fun it doesn't feel like work at all no. Not work. Yeah. um yeah it's true and i just listening to you then talk about that i wonder if um you know it, it's you need to go through 89 and 92 and 94 and 95, those moments to yeah. make 07 or 09 or 11 so much more. It, it comes into, you know, you have to have that, you've got to have pain totally to have, you know, yeah. to find that hope and then have that success. Oh, totally. I mean, after 1995, you know, I wrote a piece for the Herald Sun where um, I, I sort of equated us to Collingwood because, you know, we'd, Collingwood went through that period in, in the seventies Um and really, you know, the, the, the boom industry in Geelong after 1995 was psychiatry. I mean, you know, we, we were all a very like, yeah. traumatised group of people. Um, and uh, it, it, um, But it, it, no question, the, the, the pain of those years um, was put to bed in that, in that moment. Um, but also, you know, you realise the, the, you know, I talked about that Jamie Button article and he, he talked about, in that article, he spoke about his own family. Um, and you realize it, you know, it's it's a it's a really significant thing it's mm. not just yeah it is a group of young guys chasing pigskin um in in a you know pursuit which doesn't necessarily look productive but it's so much more than that you mm. know it, 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 um i really remember like in terms of following geelong I, i'm at melbourne uni um this is late 80s and i'm kind of thinking i'm you know i'm in the labor climate and kind of a bit avant-garde and you know when i absolutely wasn't but i kind of had my <laughs> maybe i was um and and um and that you know I, I, maybe I'm, I'm kind of i'm, I'm beyond sport you know I've, I've evolved as a person and then i'm at home and it's um uh the footy replay which isn't quite the same thing nowadays as it was then mm. um and they've got they're replaying a quarter of a geelong game and i was just watching it and, and without even knowing it i was watching it and i was kind of transfixed and i couldn't leave and we weren't that good that year and we i'm not even sure we won that game i was just gonna turn my eyes off it and it suddenly occurred to me i actually love this club mm. like i really love them mm. I, I love the i love the hoops i love watching it um and and it's not it's not it's not even up to me mm. like this is this is actually uh, who i am yeah um i, I couldn't choose not to do this yeah. this is this is just what i'm about um and uh you know so so embrace it um you know i clearly have i feel like this is uh, becoming a um uh, audio version of nick hornby's fever pitch book tracking his um <laughs> obsession with um uh, arsenal in the year that they um won the league in 89 
Uh, Richard Miles, this has been wonderful to have you on the show today. Um, I'm really glad that we did do this. Um, thank you for sharing all of the memories that you've had across. Um, I, your, your, your list was way more diverse than mine. Props to you for doing that. <laughs> um, but uh, this was great. I'm glad we did this. Me too. And uh, well, next time, Stephen, we will we'll get back into mainstream politics, but this is much more fun. Uh, I know, I know. I, I feel sorry for a lot of our dedicated loyal listeners, you know, looking for some um, update sort of uh, conversations about how the, um, the Morrison government had one job. You had one, one job and you've stuffed up the vaccine rollout. Um, but maybe we can uh, touch base on that um, next time and many other things we'll as well. We'll do that next time. Cheers. Beautiful. See you later.